Hello, and welcome to a reprogrammed episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana, and today we'll be reviewing part one of our Welcome to L.A. trilogy with 1991's Terminator 2, Judgment Day. We'll jump into five-point inspection with Metal Man, A Softer R, JC, The L.A. River, and Scorer. Before we do, let's check in on the shop. No, no, it can't be true. You little bastard. You've, you've killed the shot. Oh, oh, Jesus Christ. Brett. Brett is Travis. Ah, shit, amigo. Is everything okay? It's, it's 3.30 in the morning. I know. I know. I'm, I'm sorry. I just I just had the worst nightmare. Dude, you're 36 years old. I know. I know. But but listen, this, this felt too real. You know that high school kid, Dyson, that we let tour the shop last month? I, I think he's going to use that info to put Hollywood Chop Shop out of business. Dude, you seem paranoid. Look, he, he's a shark kid, but he's, he's 16. I, I don't think we have anything to worry about. He, he, he's just a dream, man. It, it isn't real. <laughs> well, on August 29th, 2027, it's going to feel pretty fucking real to you, Brett. It happens, all right? He puts the shop out of business. He puts us out of business. There is no fate but the one we make. All right, all right. You're kind of freaking me out now, man. Can we talk about this no, tomorrow? No, no, I'm going to his house. I'm going to his house. This can't wait. I mean, if you could go back and kill baby Hitler, Brett, wouldn't you fucking do it? Whoa. Before we make any rash decisions, let's just discuss Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Maybe it'll calm you down. In 1995, a 10-year-old boy with daddy issues receives a repurposed killing machine from his future self. Sent back in time from the year 2029, the Terminator's purpose is to keep the would-be leader of humanity safe from a more advanced killer cyborg hellbent on preventing the delinquent from ever hitting puberty. Alrighty, Travis. Before we get into five-point inspection, you know I want to know your quick diagnostic of 1991's Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Um, I know we'd like to, when we can, kind of parse out where we first saw this movie. This movie is such a uh, seminal film for my childhood, Brett. I have seen it so many times that I honestly could not tell you the, the first time that I saw it. Um, <laughs> I can't even remember, because and I think it's, I wish I could. I wish I could remember if I knew that Arnold was the good guy coming into the movie. Uh, it feels like it... It was impossible to not know that, but then again, this came out in 91, so it's not like you could have been spoiled by the internet. Uh, to, to my mind, this is literally the best action movie of all time. Um, I've never watched it for a podcast through a critical lens, so I really tried to 
uh, critique the movie where I could. I found a couple of bits, but all in all, I I can't lie. I still fucking love this movie. What about you? Um, I mean, this this movie does not hold up, Travis. I don't I hate to be on the other side. I'm just kidding. This movie's fucking fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I had to fake you out like they did in Terminator 2. You see that? You see that? That was going to be my first question is, I want to know what the original marketing for this movie was. I mean, I would have been, I think, four or five at the time. So Lord knows I was not, you know, part of commercials or trailers and like that. But to me, it's pretty far into this movie before you find out who actually is the threat to John Connor. And I would like to think that because there's been plenty of movies where they wind up spoiling that in the trailer. You're just like, that would have been a great reveal. Like, I think a prime example recently is the latest Fast and Furious movie where they wind up spoiling that Han is in the movie. It's like, why wouldn't you leave that for the audience to find out in the movie? Like, that would have been a great moment in the theater or when you're watching it in your, your couch, whatever. They're like, oh, my God, Han isn't dead. Like, what is going Like, what is happening here? So I would like to think in 91 that... They hadn't resulted to doing stupid shit like that to get people into the theater that the Terminator and Arnold Schwarzenegger alone would have brought people in and they didn't ruin that because if they did, that that's a, a travesty to the script because it is fantastic the whole time where you don't know, even at the point where the Terminator shoots T-1000 the first time, you're still not convinced, did he miss Connor or like what's going on here? It's, it's a, it, I'd say a few scenes after that before you're really comfortable with the idea like, okay, Terminator is like Arnold Schwarzenegger is actually the good guy in this movie. Yeah, I believe he tells John to get down. Uh, and that's kind of technically when you know. Um, and here's the thing. We can go ahead and, and get into the five points if you want, because through a critical lens. This movie, to me, it kind of gives away that Arnold is the good guy even earlier, even if you go in with. Uh, without any meta knowledge, without knowing that by 91, Arnold is like one of the biggest movie stars in the world. So it's hard to imagine that he's going to play the same cold-blooded killer that he did in 84. But I'll, I'll just go ahead and get to it with a softer R. Um, mm -hmm. This movie is rated R, but it clearly is trying to play to more of a child demographic than the 1984 original did. And the part, point I'm talking about that kind of left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth is at the beginning of the movie when he's at the biker bar, as soon as bad to the bone hits, I kind of rolled I, my eyes. I I actually had that in my notes. I'm like, tonally, especially once you finish the movie and you realize they don't do anything else like that in the movie. I'm like, is that a weird tonal choice to put bad to the bone in this movie? Because it feels so out of place. It feels out of place at the beginning of the movie. When you finish the movie and you rewatch it, it feels out of place. I just don't understand. Was that something James Cameron desperately wanted in the movie? Was that a studio? Hey, we've got to get like some music in here for a soundtrack or we've got, you know, a deal with Sony or, you know, Sony's got a deal. Like, I, I don't know. It just it did feel so out of place because I don't remember any other music in like actual music in the movie aside from the, you know, the, the score. Yeah, the only other actual licensed music that I can think of is the Guns N' Roses song that's playing on the boombox when John Connor's riding around. But that's even kind of, I, I think it's called In Media Res, I believe, because that's playing from the boombox that his his ginger mullet friend is carrying with him. But yeah, I mean, because if you really analyze the opening of the movie where Arnold's at the biker bar, he doesn't technically kill anybody. Now, granted, he is 
stabbing people through their shoulders and pinning them to pool tables, but he's not actually killing anyone. Uh, and that's even before the John Connor command later in the movie. You can't just go around killing people. Um, I thought that was a subtle way to show that he's a good guy this time. But yeah, then you come in with the cheese level of bad to the bone. I think that was one of the few mistakes this movie made. Mm -hmm. And to your point with the, you know, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy? He doesn't kill anybody in the Barker bar. I thought the same thing. I'm like, it's interesting. He doesn't kill anybody, but they don't technically show T-1000. You don't know if he killed the cop whose cop car you take either. It's not like at that point it shows that he has, you know, sword arms or anything like that. He basically punches him in the stomach. So at that point, it's still one of those, no one has taken a life. And I feel like that's why they did it that way is they kind of, both of them toned them down to where neither one of them kills anybody. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I know that the T-1000 walks away in the cop's clothes, but to your point, maybe he just knocked the police officer out and took his clothing, which again, it just exacerbates that weird tonal choice of bad to the bone. But yeah, uh, we've talked about it in other reviews where these R-rated properties spawn like children's cartoons. I had several action figures of Terminator 2 which in hindsight seems crazy. I know we live in the, the age of Marvel now, so it's nothing new for your Hollywood blockbusters to have toys. But to have uh, an R-rated movie where people are getting stabbed through their throat while drinking milk by a long blade, uh, it, it's kind of a, a weird choice. So yeah, the softer R is just the craziness of this being very much an R-rated movie, but very much trying to cater to a children audience to expand that gross. Yeah, I mean, to, even to that point, I mean, this had video games that spawned off of it. So it, it definitely at this point, you know, the the Hollywood machine and marketing had gone full swing and you're trying to, to get money wherever you can. And if you can get kids to see a commercial with a robot skeleton, like, yeah, you're probably going to try and sell toys off of that, which is insane to think about. Um, Did you have anything else for a softer R? Uh, no, just the, the weird tonal choice to me. Uh, I, I wanted to make sure I called that out. So we'll use that as a good transition for score. So for anybody who's wondering how that's spelt, it's S-C-O-R-R-O-R, -R -R, because I decided to make a pun with score and horror. Why, you ask, Travis? Because while I think that this has one of the most iconic main themes that do-do-do-do-do, like... Who doesn't, I won't say who doesn't. I think a lot of people would identify that. And I know I constantly find myself going, doo -doo 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 -doo, just doing everyday things. But outside of that theme, which I think is really only played at the beginning and the end of the movie, I thought the score choice for this movie was very interesting because I think it's more closely related to a horror movie than it is an action movie. Like, especially like the week, week, week whenever anybody's ever being chased or anything like that t1000 to that point i mean is as a great i mean we say this is an action movie but i think it definitely you know takes takes some pieces from a lot of other genres but i thought the score in general was actually more in line with a horror score than what you would typically associate with an action movie score which makes sense because that 1984 original i don't know how long it's been since you've watched it we kind of debated would we do Terminator 1 or Terminator 2 for the L.A. trilogy? I think the, the second movie, because of its budget, kind of shows off L.A. a little bit better, which is why we picked it. But uh, that first movie is very much a horror movie. I mean, it's it's kind of like a, a techno thriller Michael Myers. Um, so I'm glad that they carried over a lot of the core elements 
of the soundtrack into the second one uh, to still make it uh, kind of horrific. Do like, I, I can't even replicate the the soundtrack like with my mouth, but I can hear it in my head that the L.A. River Chase, which we'll get to, I can just hear that, those real sharp notes, mm-hmm. those, the sudden sounding music, yeah. Well, it's sharp notes accompanied with like a tribal hunting drum. Like, like it's it's. I actually that's probably one of my favorite usages of the score is that LIC because it does actually feel like somebody is on a hunt. Um, but beyond that, just as we're talking about it, do you feel that Terminator Two is maybe a touch of Evil Dead Two, where a lot because I feel like the the movie plays a lot of homage and kind of replicates a lot of what happened in Terminator One, like especially with the final thing being in the the factory and a lot of like being ground up and stuff. Like, do you think there's a certain percentage of this where James Cameron was like, okay, now I have the budget to make the actual Terminator movie that I wanted, so. As much as this is a sequel, it's also almost a, a complete imagining of what the original movie was supposed to be more like now that he had that budget. Because there's a lot of it where, like, you could kind of see it mirroring. The reason for the audience, for anybody, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 was very much that. Evil Dead was just this very low budget super horror movie. And then it wound up, he made the Evil Dead 2, which is almost a complete remake of the Evil Dead, but kind of it's a horror comedy it's a little bit tonally different and i think he had a little bit more budget with that one but and that's what i'm just thinking is it feels like terminator 2 is very much there were things that he wanted to do in the first one he couldn't so he kind of took that original vision and built onto it so it was you know a true sequel but it still allowed him to to play around and do some of the effects that he was looking for in the first movie oh yeah i mean i don't think that i think that's pretty much like cameron's on record for saying that that this was a and it, it's funny because I've bitched on this podcast multiple times about the plague that's going through Hollywood that is known as the the requel, um, which is like a reboot and a sequel all rolled into one. I mean, this <laughs> might be the original version of that. And hell, you could technically argue that Cameron even did it before he did it here with Aliens, because Aliens is a little bit of a, a remake mm-hmm. of the first, but on a larger, more action-oriented scale. But... Yeah, I, I don't think there's any sort of debate. This is 100% a rehash of the first movie with stakes elevated because of a higher budget, which I don't, I, oddly enough, I have zero problem with. Yeah, and the requel, that's the first time I've heard that term. I've always heard of it as a soft reboot. Uh, I love requel because most of them reek and they're terrible. So well, I think that's pretty spot on. Uh, but uh yeah, just the, the, the score in general, just I, I thought it was worth bringing up. Like, I didn't even think there was that much synth in this. Like, there there's a little bit, but not as much as you would expect for A, a movie about robots and technology, and B, it being in 1991. So we're just getting out of, you know, the 80s heavy synth. Well, and, and not only the score, but I, I just want to point out, very rarely do I notice the sound design on a movie. I loved a lot of the sound design work on this. Uh, I'm thinking back to... You know, the scene that Arnold is revealed as the hero, even the weapon that the Terminator the T-800 uses is that shotgun. And it's obviously those those big, heavy shotgun blasts. And the T-1000 uses the, you know, the pistol, which they I don't I don't know if you're a gun guy, but the, the sound of that pistol that the T-1000 uses, the, the sound effect for it is not at all realistic, um, mm-hmm. but it it does 
prove as a better contrast to the T-800. He's got, the T-1000's got the pistol that makes the pew, 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 like the, the sharp, high-pitched <laughs> sounds, whereas the yeah. Terminator's got the shotgun. So even little attention to detail like that to contrast our two heroes. One is the, well, not our two heroes, but the antagonist and the protagonist. One is bruising and, and just brute force. The other one is a little bit sleeker, you know, with his stabbing weapons. So uh, not only the score, but just the sound design, I, I appreciate it as well. I'll give you that for 98% of the movie, but there are definitely some, as we're talking about Bad to the Bone, interesting choices with sound. Like the first time I noticed is when the, the trucker before the LA River scene, he throws the trucker out of the car and the sound his legs make when they hit the pavement is like a and it's like that's a that's a weird sound choice to use i'm like i honestly don't even know if i needed to hear his legs hit the ground with the truck and everything going on but it's definitely one of those i'm like it sounded like somebody like punching gak or something like that i'm like that's not really the sound i think his legs would make and also maybe a little distracting for someone who gets really into sound design like that but to your to your point i think yes for the most part this movie is is pretty spot on with with its sound design it, al- it always feels effects. intentional at least which i'm sure that yes. leg sound was intentional we just might not know what it was intending to do well and intentional too this movie is is fantastic about uh, we talk about payoffs and stuff like that, but like thinking through the logic of what would happen. And I think a, a clear example of that for me was towards the end of the movie when Sarah O'Connor is in the back of the the SWAT vehicle. And we know the helicopter is going to be coming in with, with the, the machine gun with with T-1000. And she's taking police bulletproof vests and packing them into the window so that she has a place to hide behind. I'm like, that's really interesting that Cameron took the detail there as opposed to just having it an open window and being like, oh, somebody like us with a critical eye being like, and he couldn't shoot her through the window. Like, why didn't he shoot her through the window? Like, There's little details like that where like they're really paying attention thinking like, well, if we're going to have a gunfight here, like, wouldn't it make sense that she has to have additional cover because that glass is not going to sustain or it's, it's not even there to protect her. God, and, and while we're talking about that scene, the shot that Cameron pulls off with that helicopter flying under the overpass, to this day, that is one of the best looking shots on film that I have ever seen. And apparently, uh, like the camera people were very hesitant to film under that bridge. They're like, hey, the, the odds of this helicopter crashing are high enough where we don't feel comfortable doing it. So apparently Cam- Cameron's the, the camera operator for that because he was the only one that was confident enough to stay under under the overpass. Well, kudos to him for, for stepping up. But that is, yeah. Beyond that, it goes back to the call off of the Terminator and T-1000 learning because earlier is when the semi-truck hits the overpass and it rips it off. And he's actually able to drive or fly underneath the overpass without being taken down. And there's there's a couple of different scenes of that where, again, great callbacks with with the the machines learning because you have the when Arnold Schwarzenegger takes the uh, the SWAT vehicle when he pulls the visor down to find the keys like John Connor had taught him earlier. There's there's just wonderful wonderful callbacks in this movie where things pay off things that you don't even expect to pay off pay off. Not necessarily a callback thing, but it's interesting you mentioned the the two Terminators kind of learning. And, and growing as this movie goes on. I forgot that this is also kind of a, a journey for Linda Hamilton to 
Because at the start of this movie, she's almost a Terminator in her own right, not physically, but like her mentality is. So she has to kind of rediscover her humanity, which I thought was interesting. You know, Arnold's growing to be more of a human being as this movie goes along, but technically so is Sarah Connor. Yeah, and I thought an interesting part with that, I was going to bring it up, is Sarah's dream sequence, everyone else vaporizes, but she winds up having a metal skeleton. And I think that is, to your point, talking to the point that she's becoming a machine herself, that she only has one objective, and that's stopping Skynet or protecting her her son. And to that extent, she she's lost her humanity, especially... She, I guess she regains it when she goes to kill Dyson and winds up, you know, that's when she realizes she can't do this after she's already shot him. But that it is a very interesting, the watching the two, yeah, you know, Arnold become human and her basically becoming a robot. Yeah, I didn't even think about in her flashback. Yeah, everybody else, you know, to quote her kind of blows away like leaves. Uh, but she's left with the with the skeleton, which obviously is is a big part of the, the Terminator mythos. Um, I don't know if it would be a good time, but, you know, J.C. was one of my five points, not Jesus Christ, James Cameron, um, who I think <laughs> is. I, I could go back. You could tell me I go back and forth between Michael Mann and James Cameron as my favorite two directors. But since we're on the subject of Sarah Connor. One of my favorite things about James Cameron, he writes and directs badass female characters. I think, obviously, you know, we know the transition between Sarah Connor and the 1984 Terminator and then Terminator 2. Uh, of course, I mean, there's Ellen Ripley uh, in Aliens, you know, the, the power loader scene, of course. Um, but even something like uh, True Lies, like Jamie Lee Curtis is a very meek, mild character who by the end of it is, you know, basically Arnold's sidekick in action. Um, Kate Winslet in Titanic, you know, at one point she's swinging an axe, she takes back her own power. And I mean, mm -hmm. I don't like the movie Avatar, but, you know, Zoe Saldana in that movie is really the, the real hero. She's always saving, you know, Jake Sully in that movie. So... Cameron's uh, depiction of, of strong women on film very much continues with this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, I, I will give him a lot of credit for that. I, uh, yeah, it's interesting you would put him up there as one of your favorite directors. I don't know if I have as much of a love letter for James Cameron. I think he definitely has some really cool stuff. I think, yeah, we'll just leave it. I guess we'll leave it at that because I'm sure we'll do more of his movies and maybe I can get into some stuff there. But I uh, I definitely enjoy a lot of his material. I just don't know if I would put him necessarily on a on a pedestal. What did he do? Oh, I guess it was Avatar. Avatar went up against Hurt Locker and lost, right? And Hurt Locker was his ex-wife directed that. Yes, Catherine Bigelow. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, he does do a, a fantastic job. So I, I don't want it to make it sound like I think he's a hack or anything like that. But uh yeah, just fantastic. He he writes and directs a lot of his stuff, so we'll see what comes of the the new Avatar too. What is it? War Waterworld? I think it's the <laughs> I think it's the Way of Water, I believe. Yeah, what did I say? Uh you referenced a Kevin Costner mid nineties notorious bomb called Waterworld. Oh. Whoops. Sorry. I <laughs> just yeah. But yeah, uh, it's just I, yeah. I, I James Cameron, like spectacle filmmaking, I just it's cliche to say it, but they just don't make them like Cameron used to make them anymore. 
I don't even know if Cameron makes them like Cameron used to make them, though. I mean, Avatar was heavy CG, and then, of course, he was trying to do all of the the 4D, 3D movies or whatever the hell it was that, of course, bombed and was not was not a great investment. But And he was at the forefront of that technology. So, like I said, I look very much forward to seeing what he does with Avatar 2 to see if he gets maybe back to his roots with a little bit more of the practical stuff. I don't know how you do that with a movie like Avatar, but... <laughs> Um, I mean, you've kind of backed yourself into a corner with that. Here's the thing. James Cameron, love him or hate him. He's he does not rest on his laurels as much as I defend somebody like Michael Bay. Michael Bay is willing to throw away over a decade of his career just making Transformers <laughs> movies over and over again. Whereas Cam- True. Cameron can have, you know, the biggest movie in the history of cinema, literally Titanic. And then step away from filmmaking for because i mean i don't think that he he didn't do anything between titanic and avatar i don't believe which is incredible I don't think to think so. about yeah that's just incredible to think about avatar was what like 2009 so you make literally the biggest movie of all time literally the biggest movie of all time and then take 12 years to do something else you know, because you want to go cruising around in your submarine to the bottom of the mariana trench it feels like Movies at this point are a way to fund his other passion projects. It's just incredible to me. And it, it, that's why it makes it an event. I, I thought Avatar was absolute shit, like from a script <laughs> standpoint, like that yeah. is dog shit. But I could tell the camera wasn't really interested in the script part of it. So I respect it because he is 100% going to do what he wants to do. Don't try to give that man a single note. Uh, it is amazing how much of his filmography is Terminator, Terminator 2, and Titanic. Whether it's a documentary or a short story about him. Like, it's basically, it's just people asking about those franchises because of how big they were. I mean, he all he does is make, ti- you know, um, titans of, of movies. Yeah, he's very much got a, I think we talked about it back when we reviewed The Shining, but he's very much an event kind of filmmaker. If he's going to release something new people are going to be interested sight unseen. You don't have to give a plot description. You don't have to tell them who's in it. If it's Cameron, if it's Kubrick, you know, you want to see it. Well, yeah, I mean, to your point, he doesn't make something unless he wants unless he's confident, he wants to make it. So it winds up making his movies that much better because there is so much passion behind them. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I couldn't do this podcast without giving James Cameron his flowers. All right, very nice. So with that, I wouldn't mind doing Metal Man next. Uh, we've hinted at a little bit of, actually a lot of what I wanted to talk about in Metal Man because I left it vague as to who we're talking about that intentionally because the first thing I wanted to talk about, you know, who was the villain? We already touched on that. Uh, the special effects. So what's interesting about this is why they chose, I think one of the reasons why they chose to make T-1000 metallic like he did is especially in the 90s and all that, apparently one of the easiest things to do in special effects is reflections. So is a way, I think, of making a lot of that movie timeless where you weren't, like, it wasn't going to age poorly, which I'm not going to say it ages great, but you're, it's not distracting when he winds up becoming, you know, the T-1000 metal person, I don't think. No, I mean, it sounds like you were a little bit even more down on the special effects. And yeah, I... I 
Yes, does it take you out of the movie a little bit? Of course. But to think that this was 1991, like that, it, it you can't really put a, a a fine enough point on it. Revolutionary for 1991. I know that he kind of built upon himself, like the if you've seen The Abyss, the movie he did before Terminator 2, the the water alien creature in that is very, you can tell that was the kind of prototype to T-1000. Uh, but yeah, I, it, it obviously you can tell it's it's a movie made in 1991, but to me the effects hold up a, as as good as they possibly can for their age. Well, that's because to take it back, <laughs> we're going to be all over the place with this one again. To take it back uh, to to JC, James Cameron is very much like George Lucas, where he likes the technology and the like being at the forefront of that. So I know Titanic, I think, was one of those movies like the pool that they did in the size of the models that they made. I don't think anybody had ever made a model as big as they did for Titanic because he wanted that that practical effect. And I think that's a lot of what he goes into, much like George Lucas when he was doing Star Wars and even THX. A lot of what George loved was the new technology and playing with the new, even, you know, Phantom Menace and all of the green screen. It was about how far we can we push the technology. The difference is James Cameron is a good writer and director, <laughs> but um, they're both, I think, very much caught, cut from the same cloth where every time Cameron seems to come out with a new movie, or at least recently, it is he's pushing what the, the technology is. You know, Titanic, again, I'm talking about the, the size of the model and stuff like that. Uh, Terminator 91, the, the graphics they used. No other movie was doing it at the time. Avatar was, did the 3D, was one of the first movies to use the 3D technology. So I think Cameron is just as much in love with the tech as much as he is with actually being a, you know, being in, a director and a writer. Yeah, and dare I say, I, I can't even confirm that Cameron is a good writer, uh, but the difference between him and Lucas is it feels like James Cameron can recognize when he needs to look for additional assistance. Um, you know, we, we've talked about Star Wars a lot on this podcast. We literally have done, you know, all three of the prequel movies um, already, but the the original trilogy, the best of that trilogy is when George Lucas let go to some extent and quote unquote let the mm. professionals handle a lot of the movie making elements. So either Cameron has a knack for dialogue and a script, or he at least realizes when he needs to farm that stuff out. Well, and to your point, like I don't think I wouldn't say James Cameron is one of the best script writers of all time, but he takes a lot more love and appreciate care for for his characters and how they interact and in their dialogue or he makes it towards a robot so it makes sense why the dialogue is is very robotic but uh, yeah i just um yeah i I, th I think it's good i guess that's what i'll i had something to say and my train of thought was completely derailed so i'm not exactly sure where i was <laughs> well, about to go with all that i'm sure it'll come back to me and then we'll go back to jc yeah, and, and just real quick, I also want to say, as much as he wants to be like Lucas and, and push the technology side of things, he also knows when to rely on practical effects. Like, there are two different instances of this movie where he uses the fact that the actor has a twin um, to kind of fake that, like, technology. The two examples, did you know the... Um, the cop at the mental, inst mental institution, he's got like the red hair and the mustache. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. The the reason that looks so great is because they had that actor's twin brother play when the T-1000 imitates him and kills him. Those two guys are twins. And then later in the movie, they use Linda Hamilton's twin sister uh, when the T-1000 is trying to lure John out. Uh, hmm. That looks so good because, again, it's Linda Hamilton and her twin sisters. So he doesn't always rely on the technology when there's something easier that can be done that'll that'll make the movie even more believable. Yeah, I, I think it's he understands what he has at his disposal and then uses that, which is, I think, a really good sign of a, again, a, good, a good director. It's like, I'm not going to try and push this if I know it's not going to look good. Let's figure out how we need to reframe this, with the exception of Bad to the Bone. Still don't know why. He, <laughs> maybe that was like a love letter to his dad. Like that was his dad's favorite song. So he's like, oh, I'll put this in there. There has to be a reason they decided that song had to be in there, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm assuming it was maybe used in a trailer or was a marketing thing. I, I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's one of the few missteps in this movie. Uh, and then the last thing I had to talk about in Metal Man, we, we talked about, we, we got on with, you know, the, the humanity between Sarah and, and the, the T1 or sorry, the Terminator. But I think it's interesting in both movies that John Connor sent back basically a father figure. I mean, he sent back, it was Kyle, was that his actual father's name? Yeah, Kyle his, Reese. Kyle Reeves. Reese. And in this, when he sends back the Terminator, who basically acts as a father figure, which the movie at a certain point, like James Cameron <laughs> didn't give himself enough credit where, where he was being clever, where it's like he uses Sarah Connor's voiceover or monologues to basically tell the audience like, hey, this is him being like a father. I'm like, okay, like, yeah, we should, as the audience, we should be able to pick up on that, which we, which I did. And then she blatantly tells him like, yeah, oh, well, thank you, Sarah. And then even at the very end of the movie, when she's like, you know, I, a machine can learn to be human. Can we learn? I'm like, okay, yeah, that was the point. I don't, thank you for telling me the point of the movie at the end. Like I, again, did not need you to be that blunt <laughs> about the message you're sending here. Brett, that is, you nailed it. That's my only other complaint about this movie. It's number one, the use of bad to the bone. And number two, how for some reason, like three fourths of the way through this movie, Cameron decides we have to do more Sarah Connor voiceover work. Like, I, I think the movie opens with her kind of explaining that, hey, we're sending a Terminator back this time. And then there's no more narration until like the last 30 minutes of the movie. And then the narration feels like it's nonstop, including those stupid ass lines like, yeah, you know, the Terminator will never get drunk. The Terminator will never beat him. He'll always be there for him. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're laying it on a little heavy now. So I wonder, as we know from watching, <laughs> watching, uh, well, Shit, what was that movie we watched with Tim Robbins? Oh, The Player? The Player, thank God. Uh, test audiences. Uh, do you think that those monologues were in the original script, or do you think that that was a... The studio asked her to do voiceover, James Cameron to put that in there with voiceover, because it tested better with the audience? I don't know if it tested... Yes, that had to be a studio note. Like maybe people were a little bit confused somewhere in the third act. So it's like, hey, can we do a little more hand holding? Because I don't think it's technically voiceover, but also when Sarah and John and the T-800 are at the gas station 
and the little kids are playing around with toy guns that look awfully realistic for whatever reason. I don't, yes. But I'm like, those don't look like water guns. But John Connor's like, we're not going to make it, are we? And the Terminator's like, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. I'm like, again, this feels awfully heavy handed. Like there was some a good degree of studio notes at the end. The camera was just like, fuck it. OK, we'll do it. Yeah, I I definitely thought that with the the voice. It's another one that it feels out of place for the tone and style of this movie to have her do these random, you know, journal entries that she's that she's reading off of. Uh, but yeah, that was that was my my big things with Metal Man. Like I said, just the it was interesting seeing John Connor and they hit that home a lot about him not having a father figure. And oh, my my mom would 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 fool around with anybody that could give me more knowledge so I could become the ultimate leader and this and the other. And it's like he he it is brought up multiple times that he did not does not have a father figure and that anybody. What is it? When they're working on the car, like, yeah, my mom had this one guy that was pretty cool that worked showed me how to work on cars. But then my mom pushed him away because she we just started talking crazy talk. It's like they're really laying the the whole father. I need a father, uh, you know, <laughs> on pretty thick. Yeah. And I think like this, the, the scene you're mentioning, like when they're working on the car, that's perfect. That's all you need. But mm-hmm. it feels ridiculous when that's tacked on to, you know, two or three other voiceovers. It feels like Cameron new to shoot that scene but then yes something happened to where we needed it more or somebody needed it to be more paid by numbers and i think that's again one of the few missteps of this movie yep so the last category we have in five points before we wrap it up is the la river uh do you want to talk do you want to start off this 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 little point of inspection here or here would you like me to do it uh Go ahead. I mean, I, I think we need to talk about some of the action of the movie. So the L.A. River will be a perfect way to to do that. But, yeah, I'll, I'll let well, you lead it off. So, yeah, th- I think what's interesting. A, that's a fantastic chase. And I will say, uh, what's his face? Who played T-1000? You know, I'm, I'm not the, the names guy. On, thank you. I'm not the names guy on this podcast. Um, Him running is still one of the scariest things, I think, in any movie ever with just apparently he trained so that he would be able to sprint and run without having to you know gasp for air because he thought it would look more intimidating if it didn't look like the 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 pursuer was exhausted running and god is he fucking right because it is terrifying and anytime when he is chasing people down it is just that stern face like it is it is just absolutely terrifying but we see that which leads directly into the la river chase but I was surprised at how much of the action in this movie is vehicular action when you really think about it. I mean, we get the bike chase, we get a car chase, we get a helicopter. I mean, I think we probably could have used a boat chase, um, especially after last <laughs> week's uh, face-off. I think it was missing a good boat chase. But at the end of the day, there's a very good, a, a large collection of auto automobile chases in this movie. Yeah, and I mean, dude, the, the L.A. River chase, because here's the thing, too, with Cameron. That's really the first action scene of the movie. I know technically you've got the biker bar, but that's just kind of him throwing people around. You have to wait like a good 30, 35 minutes for that L.A. River chase. And just to touch on Robert Patrick, it, it sounds easy to play, you know, an emotionless robotic killer. 
But I've never seen anybody do it the way that Robert Patrick did. And, and to your point about his run being terrifying, the scene where John is trying to start his dirt bike and he's, come on, come on. And the T-1000 comes out of that door and is running just as fast as the dirt bike. I just, like you said, absolutely terrifying. So, um, Travis, apparently, according to the trivia that I read, Robert Patrick was actually running faster than the dirt bike because he had been training so hard and they had to tell him to slow down because he was catching up to the dirt bike. That's incredible because, yeah, again, we talked about how much of this movie is is practical where it needs to be. It, Yeah, it, I very much believe that he was catching that dirt bike because it feels like he almost caught it several times. I also love john struggling to start the bike i feel like is another one of those tiny payoffs that you miss because the earlier scene is him in his garage tuning on or tuning up the dirt bike so it already looks like he was having to do work on it so maybe it wasn't quite as reliable so it's things like that that i appreciate because it's not like oh it's just for the sake of the movie oh he can't start the bike what are the chances so that we can create some tension it's like no they kind of alluded to that earlier when he's working on the bike in the garage that the bike might not be functioning at 100% or he's having to work on it. Yeah, and it just the, the attention to detail with the action because I think my favorite sequence of this whole movie and it, I was kind of timing it, um, is the whole hospital, uh, Atascadero State Hospital, that whole mm -hmm. rescue scene. And that scene is probably a good 25 to 30 minutes in whole. That mm -hmm. is just just perfectly done because the, the, a few of the character elements like that whole sequence, Sarah Connor, you get the feeling like she was going to be able to escape whether John and the T-800 came for her regardless. Uh, but mm -hmm. she is so efficient the way that she fights, the way that she takes out like the creepy guard that licks her face, um, the way that she's got the fucking like liquid, like the Drano in the syringe using that as a weapon. And yet, Brett, my favorite scene of the movie is when she is running to the elevators and those elevator doors open and the T-800 steps off of the elevator. The badass that we have seen for the past 20 to 25 minutes is completely gone. And she is that terrified woman that we met in the first Terminator who had no chance mm -hmm. as she kind of falls to the floor. I just can't imagine, like... Cameron does the job of like, hey, imagine if you have this boogeyman that lives in your mind for 10 years and you tell everybody that he's out there. Nobody believes you. You're committed because everybody thinks you're crazy. And then, boom, in your moment of escape, you come face to face with him again. And then, the, you know, come with me if you want to live. That scene is just 10 out of 10 perfect. No, I, I would 100 percent agree with that. I will ask you, I, I had <laughs> him licking her face because he doesn't sexually assault her. Or I don't know, you, that might fall legally under sexual assault. But the, the guard licking her face, is that just so that when she beats the absolute holy shit out of him, we're not supposed to feel bad for him as a guard? Oh, absolutely. I, the, I mean, I look, like, there's, there's countless horror stories of people in those kind of positions abusing their power. So to me, it's not far-fetched at all. But from a narrative standpoint, yes, I think that exists so that when he gets his face wrecked, it's kind of a, a fist pump moment. And to your point about the, the action, 
what I think is great is this movie does a great job. There's a ton of action, but it never feels exhausting. Like you just said, it's almost a 20 minute scene of her escaping that prison or that that psych ward. At the end of it, though, we get a break before we get into another action piece. And it, it's very well paced because there's plenty of action movies out there where you're like, towards the end of it, I'm just like, I'm ready for the action to be over. Like, I'm exhausted watching the movie. And I think Cameron does a great job of knowing right about where that limit is. Where like, if this was any longer, I would I would lose interest and I'm not I don't want to watch this anymore. But he cuts it right before right before that happens. He edges you, you know, that's he the action <laughs> edge. And then brings you back so you can go a little bit longer. Oh, I there's a little bit of an inside joke concerning edging with one of our listeners. <laughs> so I, I'll just pause there. If, if John Arneson, if you're listening to this, there there you go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we when we reviewed Face Off, I kind of mentioned it like the last 20. By the time we get to the speedboats, I'm like, I am tired of hearing gunfire. Like I kind of have a little bit of a headache um i i could do with some character you know moments and yeah like you said cameron knows how to walk that line and again that hospital scene is you know 20 to 25 minutes but there's enough character building there's enough stuff to kind of it's not just mindless michael bay assault on all the senses kind of action so i remember what i was gonna say uh because i kind of did some filler with there uh so what i do think is funny and we're talking about sarah connor's voiceover like why did they choose where they were going to do it james cameron again does a great job in this movie of john talking to the terminator explaining all the background the guerrilla warfare all the people that his mom hung out with so that she would be like they would be trained and good to go so when we see her escaping, it makes sense. I'm like, yeah, she would know all of this. She's pre-trained. We didn't have a thing where halfway through that escape, Sarah's like, and this is where I learned because of when the guerrilla warfare in Guatemala <laughs> that I needed to break this man or I needed to fill a syringe with trainers. We didn't need it there. So why did we need it in other places of the movie where we had to explain things that clearly were explained by characters or just the environment in general? Yeah, and as stupid as I thought, like, John Connor being able to hack the ATM is, that still serves a purpose. That's still a setup and a callback later in the movie. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not exactly a brilliant touch, but it pays off. So, yeah, it just makes the the narration stuff stand out even more like a sore thumb. Well, and it goes back to, I forget what movie, oh, it was, it was Detective Pikachu, where you have him do something like that at the beginning of the movie so that at the end of the movie when he's doing it, I'm not taken out of the movie where I'm like, why? how is he able to hack the computer? And I'm like, even at that point, I'm like, okay, he went from an ATM to hacking like a super secret safe. But even to that point, it wasn't that far-fetched because I'd already seen him successfully do something similar earlier in the movie. So I don't get pulled out of it. And I think that's very important in filmmaking is when you're going to have stuff like that happen later in a movie, you have to set the audience up so they understand kind of what's going on. So when it's important to the actual story, I'm not thinking about it. I'm not distracted by, wait, where, why does he have this computer in his backpack? How, how is this possible? It's the same, you know, Jurassic Park, when they're talking about they, um, the hacking, and then she hacks at the end of the movie. Like They set that up so it doesn't feel out of place. And a lot of movies, I feel like these days, don't take the time to do that. It's just... All of us, everybody suddenly has their powers or whatever they need to win the day at, at the exact moment that they need it. Yeah, like if this movie were being made by a lesser filmmaker today, you know, when they're at Cyberdyne, there would be a scene 
like to your point where Sarah's like, hey, you know, do you remember the time that we were at the Guadalcanal and we had to break into the, the National Bank? I, I need you to do that again. No, we've already what you thought was just John Connor being a little street punk with a little bit of technology uh, p- pl- plays a vital role. Now, I I know one of the uh, the pastimes of the Hollywood Chop Shop is to nitpick a movie. Um <laughs> There's only one nitpick I have about this movie, Brett, and I it can I could never overlook it. At the end I of the I wonder if it's the same one. Okay. So at the end of the movie, when they're in the, the factory, T one thousand has got Sarah Connor basically dead to rights, and he's like, Hey, you know, call for John now. He's got his like little metal finger through her shoulder, and he's like, you know, mm-hmm. I know this hurts. Call for John now. Why not just fucking kill her and then pretend to be Sarah Connor? Because it once you once he touches anything, he can replicate it. Why keep her alive? Uh, I 100% agree. I I never understood why he he did or he does that. So what I also thought would have been a more interesting scene because we see when they escape the mental facility and T one thousand is hanging onto the back of the car. John touches that leftover metal bit and throws it off the back of the car. I was all, oh, I guess he's not the same size. He's much smaller. So I guess they kind of can get away with that. Because I was like, I don't understand why T-1000 never tries to transform into John. Because that would have been interesting at the end of he transforms into John to get close to his mom so that he can touch her to then try and get John or I don't know. But I always thought it was interesting that John, he never transforms into John after touching, John touches him. Yeah, the only reason I'll excuse it, you know, beyond the he's a lot smaller is ultimately the target is John. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't do the T-1000 a a lot of good to be John because ultimately the one person you can't fool would be John himself. Yeah, and narratively, I don't think it would make any sense for any of that to happen. It's just one of those when I saw, when I see him touch it, it's always when I was like, I'm waiting for the, you know, the John Carpenter's thing moment. Like, okay, who's who's the real John? You know, because now he can be John. But that doesn't that doesn't necessarily happen. We, we get it, but with Sarah O'Connor. I love that you call her Sarah O'Connor. I, I just... I Dude, in the pre-show, I told you that. I, I don't know why I always call her O'Connor. <laughs> Brian O'Connor. Maybe I'm trying to tie I say, yeah, maybe I'm trying to tie it into the Fast and Furious <laughs> franchise for some reason. Uh, too fast, too terminated. I don't know. That has to be coming soon. Han's gonna be a, like a robot cyborg, right? Or something like that. Somehow it's gonna be associated. Oh, maybe he's gonna be the second brother. Or the fourth brother. Whatever <laughs> oh, brother boy. he is. Jesus Christ. Oh boy. Uh, oh brother is what he is. <laughs> oh boy. Alright, so. I think that about wraps up five point. I don't know about you. I think we can get into some of our other segments. What do you think? Absolutely. I'm ready. All right. So let's go ahead and do some blue book here. So Travis, I'm not sure what you know about the, the, you know, this being one of your, your, your favorite action movie, what you know about the money, but the sticker price of this year flick, $1991. One hundred and two million dollars is what James Cameron. Yeah, he got the budget he wanted for T one. He went balls to the walls. What do you think this movie made U.S. and Canada? 
Uh, well, you asked me what I know about this movie, Brad. I have to tell you that uh, <clears throat> I have detailed files. Um, <laughs> no, I, I knew that the, what I do know about this movie is at the time of production, I believe it was the most expensive movie in Hollywood history. I don't I don't know if your research confirmed that. But biggest budget in history, I believe. OK, uh, which you said was what? One hundred and four. 102, 102 million estimated. Um, U.S., I'm going to say. We'll say 180. I'm going to I'm going to round up a little bit here, but a solid 206 million. What do you think it made worldwide? Uh, I'll say 325 million. 521 million. Oh, in 1991. 91. Yeah, this movie was huge, which is interesting that it took so long for a Terminator 3 to come out for a, a movie we didn't need, right? I don't even I I barely remember what happens in Terminator 3. Rise of the Machines. Uh, I this is I one of those it... franchises. Hmm, sorry. No, go ahead. I say this is one of those franchises that because time travel is involved, it has gotten so convoluted that they really do just have to kind of do a hard reset at this point. Where it's just like, leave it alone. Like we've changed the future and the past so many times where we just we kind of need to, to just get away from it. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, this franchise ended the second that the credits rolled on this movie. Uh, I think the only thing I remember about Terminator 3 is I believe the movie actually ends with Judgment Day like it happens. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I'm like, hey, that's that's right in your wheelhouse, a downer ending where the robots win. Uh, but I thought the movie sucked. So. Yeah, I don't remember it being good. I also remember John Connor once again being a whiny bitch. So the savior of humanity has not been portrayed well, I think, in many of these movies. So, yeah, definitely shades as of a, Anakin Skywalker as being a little bit of a petulant child. I was thinking child. the same. I was thinking something. It's a better Anakin story than Anakin story, <laughs> honestly. Um, but OK, I think that brings us to tag and title. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see if you can if you can trick me on this one. Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, pulling back the curtain of the Hollywood Chop Shop, I scrambled to put this one together. So if anybody listens to this and thinks it's not my finest work, I that's fine. I appreciate that. I uh, I take that. I take that with. I understand. and I'll do better next time. That's all I'm saying. All right. So are you ready? I am ready. All right, Travis, I'm going to read you three taglines. One is a tagline, an official tagline for Terminator 2. One is a tagline for a movie I found adjacent. And one is a tagline I created myself. What I need you to do is tell me what the official tagline for Terminator 2 is. Here we go. This is not a game. The machines are learning. And it's nothing personal. Um, yeah, I, I'm only going to say this because you kind of gave me permission to. 
three pretty mediocre taglines. So, mm-hmm. which means one of the taglines for this actual movie was very mediocre. Um, for some reason, and it never made sense to me. I think an official tagline is "It's nothing personal," uh, which I never understood. But I believe that's official. You said it's not a game, and what's what was the other one? The machines are learning. I'm going to say the machines are learning is from one of the Matrix movies. Okay. And so you made up it's not a game. So you got you got the the main one. So, you know, mission accomplished. Which you didn't isn't get that any a terrible side quest. Line, though? It is. I don't understand tagline? it. Uh, some of the other taglines for this movie were this time he's back for good. I feel like that was probably far post the actual, you know, release of this movie. The battle for tomorrow has begun. That one was not bad. That's probably actually my favorite out of all of them. Asta La Vista Baby. That's definitely like a re-release because that would make no sense to anybody who hasn't seen the movie. Um, This is not a game. It's for 2001's AI. Ah. Which I hated. Uh, that's actually a movie I want to go back and rewatch because I don't. I'm hoping because that's a Spielberg. I'm hoping it was a movie I was not at a point in my life where I would understand it. But I do remember loathing that fucking movie. And then the machines are learning was mine. Ah, okay, okay. Well, in terms of AI, I remember that being a Kubrick project that Spielberg had to finish, and I can remember like even as a younger kid watching that and being like, I can tell where Steven Spielberg took over. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I didn't even know that because he's not even credited in it. Kubrick is not. No. Oh, at least not as a writer or director. It's Brian Aldis, Ian Watson and Steven Spielberg. Yeah. I don't know how much, like Kubrick shot of it or, or had to do with the script. But yeah, he, he died somewhere in production of it and Spielberg came in. Hmm. Ha ha ha. All right. Well, do you have a time capsule for us this week? Uh, I do. Um, in the grand tradition, I found a way to tie this back to a, a TV show that I believe both of us enjoyed. Um, <laughs> It's not the OC, but believe me, I tried to find an OC connection. I was just unable to. Um, Hank Schrader from Breaking Bad. Did you did you see him in this movie? I don't think so. He was uh, on the LAPD uh, riot team that went in and wasted Miles Dyson. Uh, he was the team <laughs> I do leader. Love- <laughs> I love that scene because at that point, they don't give a shit if there's hostages or not. They open the door and immediately open fire on whoever is in that room. There is zero shits given on human life. I am so glad that that you mentioned that because that was my thought, too. I'm like, number one, this movie, literally the opening bar scene that was filmed the same night that Rodney King was beat up by the LAPD. Um, just the tactics of the LAPD in that last fight, because to your point, they have to know that there are hostages involved in this. And yet they just come in and open fire with automatic weapons. And yet, Brett, 
they call out the fact that the police recognize that this is the same dude in 1984 who wiped out an entire police station. <laughs> they realize that it's him. They then watch him shoot a fucking minigun and somehow manages to not kill anybody, which tell me how the fuck that works. But the amount I, of I, listen, he's a robot. OK, and it's basically like sniper bullets, right? I mean, there it's miniguns are known for being incredibly accurate. I love how he doesn't kill anybody. But if you realistically think he's changing a lot of people's lives, like he's crippling a lot of people, like they may not die, but they're going to have debilitating injuries that will follow them for the rest of their life. Not to mention, he probably costs the taxpayers of Los Angeles County hundreds of millions of dollars. You basically have to replace every police car in the force. But I digress. <laughs> All of that happens. And then yet when Arnold is going out to try to escape and, and get the vehicle to save John and Sarah, they order him to put down his weapon multiple times before they shoot him. So I'm like, let me get this straight. You'll just open up on poor Miles Dyson, sight unseen. But this guy who's been taking out the force with a minigun, you're going to give him the chance to comply. Classic LAPD. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, Hank Schrader was, the, was the, the captain of the SWAT team. So it was good to see huh? that even in 91, Dean Norris was, uh, was playing some sort of law enforcement. Good deal. Good deal. All right. Well, this week, this trilogy, I guess I should say, we're trying something a little different. Uh, rather than having both of us do a chop shop, we decided that we would alternate weeks. Um, a, I think it'll shorten up the episodes a little bit, and B, I think it'll give us time to really dedicate. Um, as you can imagine, having to write a mini movie every week uh, on top of your your life and your work is can be a little exhausting. So this will give us a little bit of a reprieve and a breather. So. Uh, Travis has the honors of going first, so I think you had Oscar bait? <laughs> Here's the funny thing, Brett. I did have Oscar bait. Oh, God. For, for a little behind the scenes. Uh, we spun the Wheel of Destiny. Uh, Brett got comedy, I got Oscar bait, and then it was like, hey, which do you want to go with? I initially said Oscar bait, but I changed my mind shortly after Brett, and I wrote a little bit of a comedy treatment. So I hope that's okay. Our, no, that's fine. You know, both of those came up on the Wheel of Destiny. So as far as I'm concerned, you didn't break the rules. All right. So um, with comedy, I think it's it's one of those where I would prefer to write just a couple of scenes kind of fully fleshed out and then kind of give you the idea of what the tone of the rest of the movie would be instead of trying to do a comedy synopsis. So I kind of have the first act of the comedic spin I would put on Terminator 2. So are you ready? Yes. All right. So I took I took a couple of liberties here. Um, so we're going to open up in the future, uh, 2029, uh, which is the time that, that John Connor sends the Terminator back. 
Uh, so we open in the future, and our lead character, who does not appear in the movie Terminator 2, so I, I cut him from whole cloth. We'll go ahead and call him Travis. Travis is awoken okay. by the comm system in his room uh, beeping. It's an incoming video call. Travis groggily answers the call, noticing it's his boss with the human resistance. <clears throat> Hello? Santana, where the hell are you? You're supposed to deliver the DNA sample for the T-800 program. Oh, shit, Santana responds in a panic. And then uh, we're going to have some sloppy narration from Travis. The year is 2029. Despite what was told to you in Terminator 1, the need for a sequel means that we'll be once again sending back a savior of humanity, this time in the form of the T-800 Terminator. The Resistance has combined DNA samples of our best soldiers to build a profile of the perfect weapon to download into the T-800. It's my job to deliver that sample, and I overslept. We cut to Travis hurriedly <laughs> grabbing the sample from his fridge. Uh, the sample is a gelatinous substance contained within a plastic jar. Um, as Travis goes to put the sample in his briefcase, he drops the jar, causing the lid to pop off and, and some of the substance to spill out. Oh, fuck, Jesus, oh, God. Travis does his best to scoop the material back in the jar with his bare hands, nicking his finger in the process. He loads the jar into the case and heads to work. Uh, we'll see Travis deliver the sample uh, where it is poured into machine, and the camera pulls back to show the liquid flowing through tubes uh, with the tubes leading to Arnold Schwarzenegger's T-800. Cut to a naked Arnold in the year 1994, approaching the biker bar we see in this movie. Through the Terminator heads-up display, a prompt appears. Acquire clothes, weapons, and a vehicle. The naked Arnold peeks through the bar window, seeing all sorts of rough-looking bikers. A new prompt appears on the heads-up display, and it says, Fuck that. Arnold repeats, <laughs> Fuck that. Back in 2029, we're back at the lab uh, that has just sent Arnold back to the 90s. Fear washes over one of the scientists' face as he looks at the computer readout. He speaks to his superior in the room. Sir, it appears we have a problem with the DNA sequence we downloaded into the T-800. We sequence for bravery, cunning, and integrity, but it seems the strand has been corrupted by another source. The superior responds, Damn it, are you saying that Skynet got to the sample? Uh, no, I don't believe so, sir. This appears to be more uh, incompetent. Uh, some of the new readings I see are cowardice, panic, and a complete lack of moral fiber. Everyone in the room immediately turns to Travis, who is attempting to, attempting to quietly exit the lab, but having great issue opening the door. Travis turns around sheepishly, realizing that everyone is staring at him. Back in the 90s, John Connor is being pursued by the T-1000 at the Galleria. Uh, we'll have the arcade scene, uh, which I don't know how old John Connor is supposed to be in this movie. I think somewhere between like 10 and 12. But uh, his his mullet sidekick that, that lies to the police <laughs> officer, that's a that's a real mm -hmm. one trying to cover for him. I respect that. That's a good friend. I yep. feel like, Brett, if we knew each other at 12 years old, the one of us would lie to a cop to to get the other out of harm's way. So I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Um. So yeah, uh, we, we had the arcade scene, uh, and then we cut to the outside of a mall where a pink Mary Kay Cadillac pulls up outside. Arnold, as the T-800, steps out of the Cadillac wearing loud 90s golf clothing along with a matching visor. 
the T-800 encounters the T-1000, just like in the movie Saving John. Uh, the T-1000 will chase the, the Mary Kay Cadillac, uh, but John and the T-800 escape. Uh, John will then have the realization that he's the one that sent the T-800 back, etc., cetera, uh, and try to convince Arnold to save Sarah from the mental institution. Uh, the T-800 protests, saying that the T-1000 will definitely try to acquire him there, but John persists. Uh, the T-800 agrees, but says he has to make a stop real quick. Cut to the heavily damaged Cadillac pulling into the driveway of an upscale suburban home. Uh, a late 50s housewife opens the door, shocked to see the damage on the Cadillac, but smiles when Arnold steps out of the car. John asks what the hell they're doing there, and Arnold responds, The car and the clothes were not free. We cut back to the housewife who pulls a ball gag from behind her back and smiles at Arnold. Oh, God. Arnold sheepishly looks at John, telling him to wait here. As Arnold walks into the home, the housewife shuts the door behind him. 45 minutes pass as John hears strange sounds and moaning coming from the home. Eventually, Arnold emerges, walking slowly and slightly bow-legged back to the Cadillac. He gingerly enters the, the vehicle and turns to John and says, let's go get your mom. Okay, so in that scene, you have to, as he's leaving, the old woman comes and like slaps him on the ass and calls him Sperminator. <laughs> that, see, that's a good note. Unlike asking for more narration, Brent, that's a good note. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, we're basically going to imply that uh, because Travis's DNA was downloaded into the Terminator, the Terminator was too afraid to go into the biker bar. So he went to a country club instead. And, and that's how he ends up with a pink Mary Kay Cadillac instead of a Harley. Um, and yeah, that that was basically uh, where where I stopped. I, I wanted to have kind of an opening skit, an opening premise. So I think it would just be interesting if. The Terminator still has all his abilities, like he still can't be killed by traditional gunfire, but he still has a little bit of cowardice in him uh, so that Sarah and John have to be a little more heroic in, in my comedic version of the script. <laughs> I like it. I, I picture at some point that one of them jumps in front of the Terminator to save him, not uh, just... In the mindset that he's so cowardice that they think they they forget he's indestructible, <laughs> so they take a bullet for him. Uh, so yeah, um, could could have done a few more scenes, but I thought you kind of got the at least the vibe there. Absolutely no, that's fantastic. <laughs> I'm I'm glad you switched to comedy. I haven't heard you do a comedy in a while. I feel like so that was that was good. Oh, I, I appreciate. It. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> I just also picture too, like when they're getting away from T-1000 in the Mary Kay car, like they're having to throw like the makeup out of the bag. So <laughs> at some point T-1000 for the rest of the movie, just it has makeup all over it or it, for whatever reason it continues to use that, you know, it, what it looks like from that scene. Oh, but, uh, yeah. And <laughs> or, I did because, <laughs> because it's able to trace the, the the makeup back to the old woman. Somehow T-1000 also ha has sex with the old woman. Like, <laughs> doesn't necessarily make sense, but somehow she winds up banging them both. <laughs> oh, God. Now, see, now, Brett, I'm imagining the, the T-1000's <laughs> penis turning into a stabbing weapon. And what a terrible way for the housewife to go. Or maybe a uh, great way for her to go. I don't know. Yeah. 
maybe it's just yeah it's it's a wink and a nudge and then the scene changes <laughs> we don't we don't know what happens to her oh boy no fantastic i'm i'm glad so i think that'll be at least for the, the remainder of the trilogy that'll be our the way we do it so uh any final words before we we wrap this baby up uh, well, I did have, obviously we can give whether we recommend it. It sounds like we both really love the movie, but um, you're a much, you have a much more technical background with this. I, I was curious, what did you think of the, uh, like the blue saturation that is pretty much in so this movie for every nighttime scene? I thought at first that it was... James Cameron basically showing like a, a transition from the, because I would think the original movie had a lot of the blue to it as well. And then all the day scenes, you know, we get T-1000 and T-800, they get their their stuff. And then the next is a day scene and it's it's much warmer, almost like the, the opening credits with the fire. And I thought, oh, this is, we're transitioning from what the, the original movie was into what T or T2 is. But yeah, every time we went back to the to the night shot, we went back to that very blue kind of cold. And I don't know if that, there were technical limitations or that was just a, a thing for Cameron at, at night that he liked that blue shading. But uh, I definitely I thought it was it was going to play more into the story than it actually did. Yeah, I, I was curious if you got a read on why it was there, if it was more of a necessity or because, I mean, the only other thing I can think is I remember whenever the future was shown in mm -hmm. even the first Terminator and the second Terminator, it's always that that kind of blue hue. Uh, I just couldn't tell what was the, you know, what was the subtext on every night shot being that blue, because even in the interior shots of the hospital, Anytime there's not, you know, artificial lighting, like where the uh, the substation is, where uh, she is threatening Silverman, even interior shots, the natural lighting is that blue hue. So I, I just didn't know if you could tell or if you had an idea whether that was intentional or a limitation. It sounds like I, you're not sure either. No, I, I would just assume this was in Cameron's blue period. I can't tell if that you're was a joking. that was a Picasso joke. That was a Picasso <laughs> joke. Uh, uh, but I like it though. I think it 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 it's very distinct for this movie. Like anytime you could you could show me a still of any nighttime shot in this movie, it could just be cars parked in front of a phone booth with no Arnold, no John Connor. I can tell you that it's Terminator Two based upon the way all nighttime shots or film. So I like it. I just don't exactly know what he's trying to do. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to speak to it. I'm not sure either. Uh, but what about this movie as a whole? Would you, is this a must own for you, Brett? Uh, where, where do you fall and I, how would you recommend it to people? If I won't would? say it's a must own for people. I think it's a must watch for sure. Uh, the, especially I mean, how much pop culture is, is derived from this movie. Hasta la Vista, I'll be back. Uh, there, there's so many one-liners off this movie that I think, you know, transcend into, into pop culture that I think you kind of have to know. Hell, the the thumbs up going into, like, lava or water, like, I think it's one of those things that there's a lot of movies and cartoons and just, again, media that you'll consume that references this movie that you're missing out on a joke if you don't watch the movie. I think it's well-paced. It's a good action movie. There's actually some character development. It's not, you know, a modern action movie by any means. 
you, you look at it historically, just the use of of the special effects. It's the first time they're they're really doing a lot of that stuff. So I, I think it's definitely something you have to you have to watch. Um, I don't currently own this movie, but it's one of those I could definitely see myself picking up pretty soon. Uh, well, I was able to bust out my Blu-ray of this movie um, to watch it for this review. So to me, it's a must own. The most interesting thing I can say. I cannot think of another example of this, Brett, in the history of cinema. And this is, again, a personal taste thing. This is my this is still my favorite action movie of all time. I think it's the best action movie of all time. I'll put it, a, give me whatever your action movie is. I'll take this one against it. That being said, it's not my favorite Terminator movie. I think I still like the first Terminator. I don't consider the first Terminator an action movie, though. So mm -hmm. if you got to give me a movie and its sequel, I, I think there's really three entries into that conversation. Uh, funny enough, the other one is James Cameron as well. Uh, Aliens and Alien. Again, two kind of different kind of movies in the same franchise. And then Batman Begins in the Dark Knight. I think those are the three movies where the sequel might be even better, even though it's not exactly the same kind of film. So... If for some reason you've listened this far and you haven't seen Terminator 2 or it's been some time, I would tell you to stop what you're doing and watch it now. Very good. Uh, I do have an answer for you about the blue and the orange real quick. So apparently Cameron shot this movie in two colors using uh, the lighting and filtering orange and blue. Orange was the color of humanity while blue was the color of machines. This was brought to a head in the steel mill finale where humanity and the humanized Terminator make its final stand against the machines. The orange hues of the molten steel would be uh, would destroy the machines, which was filmed opposite the cold blue of the machinery around it. So blue was meant to say, and I guess almost all of the night scenes, you know, that's when they went into Cyberdyne. That was when Sarah Connor, not O'Connor, <laughs> went to went to murder Dyson. I guess that is when she's acting kind of, you know, mechanical. As we talked about, like, that's when she is almost a Terminator. She's a machine on a mission. So I guess that, that checks out. But, yeah, anything Blue was supposed to convey... I honestly think this is kind of a bullshit afterthought comment. I, I, for it to be orange and blue, I don't think it was done and dedicated enough for that to be to be truly effective. Because, I mean, there's a lot of scenes where the machines are doing things during the day that have the orange hues, and at night you have humanity. But, I, yeah, I, I can see where... I think this was a... I won't go so far as to say afterthought, but if that was what Cameron was going for, I, I think it was not as successful as it could have been. Yeah, I agree. That's like somebody listening to Dark Side of the Moon and then telling you that it was about the JFK assassination to me. Mm-hmm. So, but, yep. Well, I think that about does that for this week's episode. Next week, we will be doing, well, we don't know. We might be calling an audible, but I believe what's scheduled is either Nightcrawler or... Crazy Stupid crazy, Love. Crazy Stupid Love. So we might be calling an audible and pulling a friend from the holly from the uh, cantina side hustle to do heat but i don't know if that's been decided yet ultimately we will have andrew babone to help us review heat but we'll see what what happens 
So, thank you all. I appreciate you sticking around, and uh, hopefully we'll see you next week. Your false pants are dead. I know, I know, but listen, it, it, it felt too real. You know, you know that high school kid, Dyson, we, we let tour the shop last month? I think he's going to... we called vacuum? <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. God damn it. Just take your line. I shouldn't be improvising. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I couldn't help it. This is the first time I'm reading it. Okay, take it from... Take that line from the top. Can you still hear me? I just lost you. Well, biscuits. What's the dog's name? Hasta la vista, baby. You can't just go around killing everyone. All right, I'm. Why? I'm <laughs> <laughs>